Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. This is the triumphal entry. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. <clears throat> so those who were sent away, who were sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. We next have our responsive reading, which comes from the fifth chapter of Revelation, verses 1 through 10. Please read this responsively. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's return to the scripture we read with Blake just a few minutes ago from Luke chapter 19. If you're visiting, we're continuing a study, which we've been for two years, uh, in the gospel according to Luke. We're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning. And uh, if uh, you don't have your Bible... Uh, or you don't have a scripture sheet 
uh, I'm going to ask, uh, I saw Ron step out there a minute ago, just checking Jeff and see, and if you need a scripture sheet, we'll get them to you. It's just an unusual amount of scripture this morning. If you'd like a scripture sheet, just raise your hand. Anybody? Okay. We did a good job passing it out then. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, this is the one time during the week that we pray together as a congregation of priests. You've called us to be prophets and take your word to the world around us here in Fayette County. You've called Christ Presbyterian to be faithful to your word and deliver it, but you've also called us to be a congregation of priests who come before you with the concerns of the world around us. And so we come weekly. We love this time, Father, when, when we're able to pray for those around us. Sometimes we've been the people for whom folks in this service have prayed. And we've been blessed by it. We've been strengthened by it. We pray that you would teach us to be priests, Father to bring others before you. This morning, our Father, we bring Dana Osborne's mother, why, before you. You know her needs. You know the needs of all these people. Our Father, we bring Billy Griggs, Jim Benning before you, and we pray that you would strengthen them physically. And most of all, for these days, give them a heart of, and mind of faith that they might be strengthened spiritually and drawn, drawn near to you. We pray for Father Sheila Nobles and Vicki Anderson, for Mr. Kenyon, that, Father, you would bring healing to them, complete healing to them, especially use these treatments, Father, that Vicki Anderson is undergoing. Pray that they'll be effective. And Father, we pray that you would bless Sheila Nobles, draw her close to you. And we pray that, Father, you would lead that family and give them wisdom about how to care for her. We pray for Sidney Wickens that her knee surgery would, uh, Father, as we thank you for how uh, you bless that surgery. We pray now that, that there would be no complications and that day by day and week by week that knee would become stronger. We pray for Mary Jo Hunt's family that you would bring comfort and blessing.
As we come to this familiar passage this morning, a passage that we love, your son entering Jerusalem. We pray that even though we've seen it many times, we pray that this morning you would cause us to see what we have not seen and hear what we have not heard. We pray that, Father, you would take this word and apply it to our hearts and change us. Change us from the inside out at the very core of our being. Our Father John Sartell cannot speak that way. No man who stands behind this desk is able to speak that way. But we've heard your voice in this room. And we pray that once again this morning, we would hear you. We're simply your children praying and asking, Father, to teach us. Teach us. Teach us for Jesus' sake. In his name, amen. A tethered donkey, a slain lamb, and the lion of Judah. Several months earlier, several months before the event of which we read this morning, Several months earlier, Jesus had left his home in Galilee. He was making his last pilgrimage to Jerusalem. After months of anticipation, both anticipation in Jesus, anticipation in his disciples, and anticipation in the entire country of Israel, he was ready now to enter the city. But this time his entrance would be different. As we saw in Luke's record this morning, Jesus himself, understand this, this was not his disciples' idea. Jesus himself gave specific instructions to his disciples to obtain a donkey that he would ride as he entered the city. On every other occasion, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he had just walked through the gates. Why did he now choose to ride a donkey? Why did he orchestrate a way that he would, this specific way that he would ride into the city? Why the donkey? The prophet Zechariah had made a prophecy about the Messiah. Said when he would come to Jerusalem to be king, he would come riding on a donkey. It's there in Zechariah 9, you can see it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's Jerusalem. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king. Circle that king. See your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation. And then gentle, gentle and riding on a donkey. So one more time. Jesus, we see Jesus intentionally claiming that he was the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. He had done this since the beginning of his ministry. We've seen it over and over and over again 
in Luke. But this was quite a scene. It was Passover week. Jewish pilgrims from all over Israel, from all over the Mediterranean, had flooded into the city. The population of Jerusalem during this week would have been doubled or tripled. Rumors had spread like wildfire that the great prophet from Galilee was making his way toward Jerusalem to claim the throne. There was expectation all through the city. As he rode down the Mount of Olives into the city, crowds followed and they were singing. Look at what they were saying in their songs. Look at verse 37. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, a whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were singing, here is the true king of Israel. The Messiah has arrived. We read in Matthew and Mark that the people were crying out, Hosanna, we're singing Hosanna. And they were singing Hosanna to Jesus. The word Hosanna would be translated, save us now. Save us now, Lord. Save us now. King, Jesus on that donkey was claiming to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. And the people believed, at least on that day, that the Messiah had come. But Jesus was also fulfilling an even older prophecy from the patriarch Jacob. In the 49th chapter of Genesis, Jacob is on his deathbed. He, we see there Jacob speaking prophetically over his sons. Look at the prophetic blessing he spoke over his fourth son. This would have been Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons, your own brothers will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub. The King James Version says, You are a lion's whelp, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and he lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter, circle it, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Stop right there. He's saying, that you're not only going to rule over your actual brothers, they will look to you as their Lord. You're going to hold the scepter of the nation. The scepter of the nation will not depart from the house of Judah. David and his family were from, the, were from Judah. They were of the tribe of Judah. This is prophecy. Then he goes on. Go back to the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until, look at this, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. When Jesus rode into the city on that donkey, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, he was fulfilling this. He had come to take the scepter of Judah as his. But then, 
the next time, the next time that ancient prophecy from Jacob is mentioned in Revelation, the next time it's mentioned, it's mentioned in Revelation chapter 5. We read it this morning. If I said the word to you, said the Lion of Judah, who's the Lion of Judah? Every person's room would say, Jesus is. And you think it's all through Scripture. It's in Genesis 49. We just read it. The lion's well. You'll be the lion, Judah. The scepter won't depart from your house. But you have to go all the way through to Revelation chapter 5 to see it again. Look at Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, John, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Jesus was not only fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy that day as he rode into the city. He was claiming that he was the one of whom Jacob spoke when he said, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, to whom the scepter belongs. You know, we sang about that this morning. In, the, in our opening hymn, crown him with many crowns. That third stanza, crown him the Lord of peace, whose power a scepter sways. The scepter in the house of Judah. Jesus was saying that day, I am that, I am that ruler. I am the lion of Judah. Then look at the last part of Jacob's prophecy in the blessing of Judah. In verse 11, he says, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his coat to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Now, I believe Jacob was saying that Judah's dependents, or descendants, excuse me, that Judah's descendants would be prosperous. They would have donkeys, herds of them. They would have vineyards, vines of grapes. Wine would be so plentiful they'd wash their clothes in them. But one cannot, one has to wonder as you read this, one has to wonder that he mentions a tethered donkey in relationship to the line of Judah. I was fascinated as I thought about this this week. That Judas' prophecy alluded to a tethered donkey. Now, I can't tell you why that is. I can tell you that in every account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, their account, each one's account of the triumphal entry, mentions the donkey. The donkey's there. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke in each of theirs, they make they go out of their way to say the donkey was tied. He was tethered. You'll have to untie him. Mark mentions that he was tied at a doorway. 
You say, John, what are you getting at? I don't know why that's there. But I know this, that there is no part of Scripture, not one single sentence, that is isolated from all the rest of Scripture. Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we've already seen, is inextricably entwined. Listen to the words of Jesus. Do not think I've come to abolish the law. Remember, he's the word, the actual word of God. He said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, letter. Not the least stroke, not a jot or tittle. And these were, were very small marks that you could barely see as they wrote. He said, even the smallest marks will not pass away until everything is accomplished. Every part of Scripture is inextricably entwined. When we, when we, when we are home in glory, we will, wonder, we will wonder at the details of prophecy and fulfillment, the details of God's word that we missed. How do I know that? I know that because every week as I study, I see what I have not seen before. And I've been doing this for over 50 years. And I still see constantly what I haven't seen. Why did he choose to ride the donkey? Was it only to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy? Well, no, because it was, you know, it was God who told Zechariah. And it was Jesus who chose that. So the donkey was God's idea. Why? When he entered Jerusalem on the donkey, he was announcing that he was king. We've seen that. But he was a king who had come to fight a different kind of battle. He came as a king to conquer. But he had to come as a king in extreme humility. He came to Jerusalem to conquer. However, in this battle to conquer, he had to allow himself to be conquered. He had to allow himself to be flogged. He had to be crucified. He had to take to himself the filth of the world. He had to take to himself your sin and my sin. Think about that. As he entered the city as a king, that's what he was coming to do. Think about all the filth, all the stuff that's in us that we hide from each other, that we even hide from our spouses and our children, the people, all the filth. He took that upon himself. And this is the king. Who said, if your right hand offends you, he was so offended by sin personally. He said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. That was his hatred of sin, and he was to take that all on himself. Even when he was being scourged, though, even in the awful beating that he received, he was still conquering. Even when he was being crucified, he was conquering. He was a king under control. What did he tell Peter in the garden when Peter was going to intercede and protect Jesus? Imagine. Someone once asked Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said, when are you going to start defending the Bible? And Spurgeon said, I might as well try to defend a lion. You understand? 
the lion doesn't need a defense. Jesus doesn't need a defense. And he turned to Peter and he said, Peter, what are you doing? You've just, you've done serious injury to this man. And he said, Peter, don't you know who I am? I could call 12 legions of angels. I could call 144,000 angels and put an end to this. I could say a word and the Roman Empire would disappear. He was a king. Redeeming his kingdom. Giving his own life. I'm not taking license with the story. Look at Colossians 2, 13. When you were dead, he says to the church at Colossae, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled out the written code, the law, with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed us. He took it away and what did he do? He nailed it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That day Christ conquered our sins by the cross. That day Christ conquered our judgment with the cross. That day Jesus conquered Satan, his power with the cross. That day Jesus set us free. Jesus took the weapon by which Satan thought he was slaying Jesus. I've killed him. I've put an end to him. And Jesus took that weapon and destroyed Satan and Satan's power. Look at his humiliating scourging. Think about that. Scourged, stripped naked, and beaten. This was the king of glory. The angels must have wondered. Look at his humiliating crucifixion. Then the humble entry to Jerusalem will make sense. He'll be on a donkey. What did it say? Gentle. It had to be a donkey. It had to be a humble steed. For he was a he was fighting a battle that demanded ultimate humility. So the humble donkey of the king entering Jerusalem brings us to a slain lamb. To a slain lamb. Remember, how did John the Baptist first identify Jesus? What did he say about Jesus? The first time Jesus walked by and John was speaking to the crowd, what did he say? He said, there's the lamb of God. There's the lamb that God sent. Go back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It was not a lamb without blemish. It was a lamb that had been slain. The NIV reads, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. The lamb is associated with the throne. He's a king, but it's a lamb that he's a lamb who's been slain. You do not understand. You cannot understand the cross. You can't understand the resurrection. 
You can't understand unless you see the scourging, Jesus carrying the cross up Golgotha, Jesus being nailed to that cross, Jesus crying out under the judgment of God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You don't understand any of those scenes unless you see him as a great king engaged in the greatest battle in the history of the world. No no greater battle has ever been fought than the battle that was fought there at Golgotha, there in Jerusalem, at that time, at that place. The humble donkey points us to a slain lamb and all of that humiliation. And then the lamb points us to the line of Judah, the king of kings. In that scene in Revelation chapter 5, what what does the slain lamb, what does the line of Judah, what do they do? What does the What does the slain lamb as the line of Judah, what does he do? He reaches out and he takes the scroll with the seven seals. What was that scroll? No one could. Why couldn't anyone else open it? Why couldn't the great angel Gabriel open it? Why couldn't the other angels open it? Why couldn't the elders open it? Because it was the deed of ownership. To all of creation. It was a deed of ownership. To God's providence. It was a deed of ownership to all of history. That's that's why John wept. The writer of Revelation. When he saw no one take. He said is there no one that can open the scroll? Is there there no one in control? Is there no one who, who owns this? And one of the elders said to me. Weep no more John. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. When did he conquer? He conquered at Golgotha. He conquered at Calvary. He conquered in the resurrection. So he's conquered. So he can. He has the ability. He is the owner. What was it Jesus said to his disciples just before the ascension? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I hold the deed. I hold the scroll. And what happens when he takes the scroll? Don't you wish you had been there with John to see this? The great hosts of heaven then sings of what the slain lamb in the line of Judah has accomplished. And they sang, verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe, from every land, from in people and nation. That's us, folks. That's John Sartell. That's Tom. Well, I'm not sure about Tom. Uh, that's you. That's you. That's me. We can say that. We can sing that hymn. Worthy are you, line of Judah. To take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people from God. You ransomed me. You ransomed me. This is Jesus. The line of Judah. This is the king. Who rode a donkey into Jerusalem. That pointed toward the cross. 
there's going to be another triumphal entry. There's a coming triumphal entry. In the line of Judah will not be riding a donkey. What will he be riding? Look at Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No. He'll not be on a donkey. It will not be such a gentle thing. He will not be going to a crucifixion. He won't be going to a scourging. The rider of Revelation meant for Jesus on the war horse to be a contrasting parallel to Jesus on the donkey. He meant for Jesus with the many crowns, with the many diadems, to be a contrasting parallel with Jesus in the crown of thorns. He meant for Jesus' robe stained with the blood of his enemies to be a contrasting parallel with Jesus' body splattered with his own blood. The next time he rides, it will be a different matter. When he returns... The picture is a great war horse. He's coming, he said it, to wage war. The time of salvation will be over. He'll be coming to consummate history with a righteous reckoning that his holy justice demands. And it will be too late. Revelation 22, 11, we read, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. What's the writer saying? It's too late. That will not be a time for repentance. It will be a reckoning. In Revelation 6, 15, we read, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they called on the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. See, keep coming back to the throne. From him who sits on the throne, from the line of Judah, hide us from him and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? 
God's holiness and God's justice will be vindicated. So where will you be on that day? Where will I be? Will you be in that number that has been conquered by the cross, been conquered by God's grace? This is a real question. This is going to happen. Or will you be slain by his righteous sword of judgment? There will be a perfect justice and judgment administered by the line of Judah. Will you be singing Hosannas? I can tell you how you can know. How did you sing this morning? How did you sing this morning when you sing, Crown him with many crowns, the Lord upon his throne? Or will you be crying out under his judgment?